I'll turn my camera off too. Yeah, my I was looking at my bars and my iStat menus, and they were too tall. Too tall, boys. Got to get rid of that video. Sorry, I'm too pretty to look at, Brian. Computer can't handle it. Welcome to episode 365 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Lovin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, we got a good interview today. Oh boy, was it good. Uh, we just got off the call and it was so fun. Uh, before we get into that, we got to give a huge shout out to our Golden Ratio supporters this week. Huge shout out to Float. Look, everyone's working remote right now and tools like Float have literally been a lifeline for teams that are forced to work from home in 2020. Float is a tool that lets you keep track of who's working on what and plan your team's time from anywhere. If you want to learn more, go to float.com slash design details. Thank you, Float. Thanks, Float. We're also supported by Hover. Hover has over 300 domain name extensions to choose from when you are building your website online today. If you don't have a portfolio, if you don't have a website, go to hover.com slash design details and get that sweet, sweet dot design domain name uh, for 10% off your first purchase. That's hover.com slash design details. Thank you, Hover. Thanks, Hover. We also have some more very important pixels today, Marshall. A lot of pixels today. Awesome. Love to see it. I love that high resolution, Brian. So many pixels. Uh, <laughs> huge shout out to new supporters this week. Andrew Hong. Sarah Canel, Mariana Riccio, Mark McCullough, Andrew Pomeroy, Hugh Ledson, Andre Rodriguez, the Stephen Olmos, Lee Chwapway, Joseph Perlman, and Andreas Kaparos. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. I hope I had a 40% hit rate on that. <laughs> I am so sorry, everybody, for my pronunciation, but thank you so much for supporting the show this week. Yes, thank you, everyone. We also have a sponsor this week, Marshall. This week, we are supported in part by Webflow. Webflow is going to help you take the next step in your design process. It's going to bring the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript into a visual interface that lets you build completely custom designs without having to worry about writing any code at all. If you already happen to know a little bit of HTML and a little bit of CSS, it lets you drag in unstyled HTML elements into your page and you can have full control over your design. But if you're not familiar with those languages yet, but you want to make something really cool, they have these pre-built pieces of, of user interface for complex elements like sliders, tabs, background videos, and more. Just drag and drop them into your page and they're going to work beautifully. If you've used Figma or Sketch in the past, you're also going to be instantly familiar with Webflow's symbols feature. It lets you to find your own shared components that when you make one change, it propagates across all your pages all at once. And of course, none of these creations would be real unless you have real content populating that page. Webflow has you covered. It lets you work directly with the CMS or e-commerce data so that you're actually building real, rich, high-fidelity websites. Learn more today by going to designdetails.fm slash webflow poke around. Their marketing webpage is gorgeous. Uh, and if you do decide to sign up for a new annual account by going to that URL, you're going to save 10%. So that's designdetails.fm slash Webflow. Thank you, Webflow. Thanks, Webflow. If you didn't know, we are a listener-supported podcast, which means that you, dear listener, can make this show possible by supporting us on Patreon. Uh, for just a buck a month, you can get access to a special supporter-only segment of every episode called The Sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. In 
normal episodes, the sidebar is like an extra cool thing, so like an extra resource or story or tip or listener question. Just basically consider it like an extra third of an episode. But today we have an interview, and on interview days, the sidebar is always bonus questions. So before we get into today's episode, if you want to hear those bonus questions at the end, be sure to go to patreon.com slash design details. And for just a dollar a month, you're going to directly support making this show possible to produce every single week. So thank you to our new supporters this week. And uh, thank you to everyone out there who's enjoying the show and, and wants to join the party. That's patreon.com slash design details. All right. Marshall, tiny bit of follow-up before we get into the interview. Yeah, I had a few things I wanted to uh, talk about from our previous episode about settings and a couple more thoughts. Uh, one, uh, I was talking about the need for an escape hatch on your settings, some way to say done after you've gone several levels deep without having to back all the way out. And one thing I realized since then is that uh, in iOS 14, if you hold the back button, it will show a menu of breadcrumbs, essentially your path to, to that page. And you can jump back to any stage along that path as, as well as like back to the root. So within just a couple taps, you can get all the way back home, which is really nice. And just thought it was kind of an interesting thing there. So if you're building native settings, you might not need a done button if your users know about that pro gesture. Mm. Uh, second thing is I just wanted to mention... When we were talking about settings, I think there's a minimum amount of settings you can have before your settings start to look kind of sad and you know atrophied. You know what I mean? Yeah, if you have settings with like one option, yeah, I mean you got to start somewhere. But that's a little disappointing. It's like at that point, why not just like build it into the interface or something like that? You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. I have seen those before. We go to settings expecting to be able to tweak some stuff. Especially, usually, I'll run into settings after I've had a problem with the way the interface works and I'll want to change something. So I'll go into settings to right, see if right. it's something I can change. And when you go in there and there's like two sad toggles, it's like, mm, maybe maybe you shouldn't have just had any settings at all. Maybe you should just like put those things somewhere in the UI. You know what I mean? Just sad. Well, that reminds me, we got a tweet this week from Muffmaster Flash, who asked a question on our GitHub a couple weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but now that Muffmaster Flash has tweeted at us, we know the name. So Monica Howe said, I'm filled with nitpicky rage when I see things under settings that aren't things you can actually set, like frequently asked questions, contact, about, or terms and conditions. But what do you call that stuff collectively? Anyways, I thought that was interesting because if you have a sad settings page, it's probably not the right call to just pad it out with other shit. Like there's... There's reasons it's called settings, right? So what would you call FAQ, contact, about, terms and conditions, that kind of stuff? Um, by the way, by the way, in the GitHub app, all that stuff is under the settings page. So yeah, uh, you're gonna if I'm gonna induce a nitpicky rage for <laughs> for Monica here, but uh, we just put it all in one page. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I. Yeah, uh, if it's going to be anywhere and it's not elsewhere, I would expect it to be in settings. But yeah, I would kind of expect those things to live at the same... That's a very funny way to say that. What, what do you mean? If it's going to be anywhere but not elsewhere, it's going to be here. Uh, well, yeah. If it's kind of gonna... like saying... It's like saying... Here's one I like. Things are more like they are now than they used to be. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm 14 and this is deep. <laughs> That's kind of the vibe I got. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is if these things weren't where I first went to look to find them, 
the next place I would go would be settings. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think enough people use settings as like you know, scroll far enough to the bottom and yep. you'll get to this kind of thing. Oh like, yeah, they're at the bottom. You'll, you'll, too. you'll find like the version number and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah about uh, open source stuff, privacy policy, terms and conditions. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, but but normally I would expect those things to live at the same level as settings, right? So so one level up, either in a sidebar or under an account menu or something like that. Uh, yeah, it depends on how many of them you have, but like certainly FAQ and contact, that kind of stuff, probably. Yeah, yeah and, and uh, one last piece of follow-up. So uh, we've had a couple patrons ask for us to split out the sidebar into its own special post, and this makes a lot of sense. It's a little bit extra work, but we've started doing that. So now all new sidebars will be posted uh, separate from the full episode on Patreon, so if you become a patron in the future, you can easily go back and listen to all of the sidebars on their own without having to listen to the whole episode or like skip to it throughout the episode. Although our chapters do make skipping to the sidebar pretty easy in the full episode. Yeah, there's there's two big things for me. And this is a trade-off. Like I can imagine existing patrons being like, why is there now an extra thing in my feed that I have to archive or, or ignore? Yeah, fair enough. Really sorry. Uh, but we have people that are like supporting the show and they want to hear previous sidebars and we're literally asking them right now to say you know go back and re-download every episode skipped all the chapters just to find that 10 15 minute clip but if we can pull them out as an individual section of audio it's really about the backlog so all future supporters are going to have this much better experience sort of getting caught up so to speak so it's a little bit of a trade-off here but you know for existing supporters you don't have to change anything. The sidebar will still be embedded in the full Patreon episode. Yep. So yeah, hopefully uh, that will help and benefit all future very important pixels, Brian, because they are very important to us. We want to make their lives a little bit easier. That's right. Yep. All right. So now it's the interview time, Brian. Who are we talking to today, Marshall? We are talking to Danae Holmes. She's a colleague of mine at YouTube. Um, she's... One of the most intelligent and delightful people I know, Brian. She's amazing. You've met her now. You can you can know that I'm telling the truth. But she's uh, an amazing researcher. Her pedigree is impeccable. And I, I think she has a lot of wisdom to share. And she does. So enjoy this interview with Danae Holmes, UX researcher at YouTube. Danae, thank you for coming on the podcast. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is great to be here. For people who aren't familiar with you, could you just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're working on right now, and then I suppose a little bit about how you got here, like as a researcher, like a little bit of your 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 path path to (laughs) YouTube. Spoiler. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Uh, Sure. So again, my name is Danae Holmes, and I basically went to school uh, for human-computer interaction. I got my undergrad at UT Dallas, and it was in cognitive science with a specialization in AI. And I really didn't know what I was going to do with that degree. So I figured I might as well go to grad school. And I actually applied for PsyD programs, so like clinical psychology programs. Um, But 
actually found HCI after talking to one of my old professors at UT Dallas. So I felt that, yeah, like I, I could, I could definitely do this. I can look at products and tell people why they're not working well. Uh-huh. Um, so <laughs> I ended up applying to several HCI programs as well and chose Rice University and also quote unquote was like accepted because it's, very hard to get into grad school so it's not like you get usually your pick of the litter you mean um, you didn't just stroll in and say what's up what can i work on i, I did not as much uh-huh. as like you know my swag would only carry me so uh-huh. far uh-huh. Uh-huh. story of my life <laughs> so, um yeah spoiler alert i did not get into any clinical psych programs but i did um get into rice university's hci program as well as um is it UT med schools? There's a huge like medical center downtown in Houston. And so they had a medical school there and I was going to go for neuroscience. And so I actually got in for neuroscience, which is awesome. But I wanted to go to into industry. So <laughs> I chose Rice and I knew that the HCI degree would probably lend a better path to doing so. At Rice, most of my research focused on voting systems for those with visual impairments. So Mm. I did my master's work on an auditory voting system, or what we call like IVRs, interactive voice response systems. Uh, The things that people hate generally, (laughs) like if you're calling a big company, you get that automated phone system. It's that. Yeah. People hate those because they're designed poorly. That's that's the only reason why. They're actually mm-hmm. highly useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and phones are pretty much prevalent, at least in the U.S. So it was a really great accessible piece of technology, especially for voting. Uh, and there's no visual interface. So it makes it even better for folks who have any kind of visual impairments. Mm-hmm. Bouncing off of that work, I went into trying to devise a more, I would say, like effective digital voting method. So currently, like there's lots of we found issues with like ballots can be really long and people with uh, the electronic voting systems usually have an end of ballot verification. And that could be up to like 100 contests or something. So not everybody it's hard to remember everything that you voted for. So I was hoping to design something that was more user-friendly and that respected the cognitive limits of our, um, basically our physiology. Mm -hmm. So looked at voting verification after maybe four or five contests and see if that helped um, with the accuracy in which people were recalling their votes. Um, So that was my dissertation work. And (laughs) after that, I I actually went to uh, HFES, which is a Human Factors and Ergonomic Society International Conference, and met a person who was giving a talk who was from Google, actually Google X. Mm-hmm. Um, she was looking for research assistance, and I figured like this seems really cool, so <laughs> I talked to her and applied, and I got the job. And so as soon as I graduated with my PhD, I basically left Texas, <laughs> drove across the United States, and moved to California. And wow. I guess like the rest is history for the most part. But I spent a year, a little over a year, at Google X, um, working on their drone and early stage robotics projects. Uh, which is really really fun. That's a that's such a human factors thing to do. Very just like working on hardware, but you know, a last time was 
my time at, at Google X was up. It was more kind of like an internship program just to prepare mostly like graduate students for industry life. Everything's more fast paced, lots of differences between that and academia, but landed at Twitch and started basically was one of the first researchers there. Me and the other researcher uh, started at the same time that we're on our team. So at one point it was just my manager, but ended up having a very small but wonderful research team at Twitch and learned so much about live streaming and uh, gaming at that point too. I was always a big gamer, (laughs) but it was one of those things like I actually had never heard of Twitch until I joined. And then I got real deep, deep in the meme (laughs) culture because Mm -hmm. you cannot work there without that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed my time there. And, um, you know, opportunity knocked <laughs> YouTube gaming and I had been at Twitch for a few years and I was ready to kind of move on and learn something different. And I kind of made the, the jump after um, a little over three years at Twitch. And so that's how I, <laughs> that's how I ended up here. You know, I'm just totally blown away. But the one question I got to ask right now is like, and I I suppose I've never asked Marshall this, but as you're playing games, do you find yourself entirely distracted by the experience and like interfaces and design patterns of the game? Does it distract you enough to the point where you don't enjoy playing games anymore? Or are you you able to separate like your work gaming and your play gaming? (laughs) I think I'm definitely distracted by it. Like it won't prevent me from playing a game unless something is just atrocious, but I am always looking at it and always thinking about it, but it's, it's not from like me being annoyed, I guess, by it, but just thinking about like what types of research could go into making this Uh, thing better. It's uh like a really good problem to solve in games research is very, very interesting. So it's one of those things like you don't really realize how people are going to use items or what kind of like patterns that they have during the game that would make, you know, organizing the menu or whatever, you know, (laughs) your, your sack of items um, Uh in a way. Well, that's also a thing. I I play Minecraft a lot. So I Mm -hmm. wish that there was like ways to group things differently, but Ah. that's a, that's a whole different gripe. But yeah, it's, it's more about just how could I help solve this versus me being angry at it? But there is always a latent kind of, I'm annoyed with this. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I understand. Now, (laughs) when you're, when you're going through all of these, your education and and programs to get to where you are now, a lot of people when they're studying HCI, they have an opportunity to like, I guess, go one direction towards product design. Like we work with a lot of people who had HCI degrees. Did you ever Mm -hmm. have that decision or did you always sort of skew towards the more uh, you mentioned, you know, like psychological neuroscience, like behavioral user research side. Did you ever have that choice? Yes and no. I mean, I almost see this choice as like, did I want to stay in academia versus like going into industry and solving these different uh, similar types of problems? And I think that I did for sure. I was at first really wanting to work at med tech places, things that like were on the cutting edge of doing, I'd say these like very nice, like brain integrated new limbs for people and things like that. So, or prosthetics, I guess we would say, mm-hmm. 
But even with that, I noticed kind of like the research, while very much necessarily needing to be done properly and being very slow and methodical about it, the reason I didn't want to stay in academia was mostly the pace (laughs) of research. It's just, it's slow and it's generally the findings that you have don't get instantiated into anything that could help people for the most part, depending, mm. obviously depending on your area, but like it's advancing knowledge, just general knowledge for sure. And I really wanted to do that, but also bring this knowledge or whatever in a way that's going to help people into fruition, like in, in a sub 10 year. Yeah. 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 <laughs> if that I mean, sense. I can't even imagine working on something that doesn't ship for 10 years. So oh, totally understand. Yeah. So for the last I mean, we've been recording this podcast for a long time and user research comes up quite a lot. But one thing that's been cool is it's coming up more and more frequently and we're hearing from more people that are asking more questions about this subject and we're actually getting some emails from folks who are actually researchers themselves. So it's really cool to sort of see that that blend and growth happening. But I guess I want to kind of start with your perspective on what the role of user research is in building software because I think there are still a lot of people out there probably at like maybe smaller companies or startups that may have never worked with a user researcher before Mm -hmm. and are curious what that's like. So I'd love to hear what your, how you would sort of frame the role of a user researcher in in software design. That's actually a really, really good (laughs) question. And um, this is somewhat like minimizing the role a bit, but the number one thing that I like to tell my stakeholders is that I, as a researcher, am a risk mitigator for e-launching products and um, that would need like very large, timely, expensive kind of redesigns or recoding because these things weren't tested with people prior to launching. Much of what I was doing actually at Google X was making sure there was a good product market fit for the things that they were building. And mm-hmm. um, for a lot of startups, there's great ideas that need to be somewhat altered sometimes to make sure that it's going to to resonate with the target audience. You could have a great idea, but if it's not like fitting into the way that people do things normally or might not be a thing that they are willing to accept at the moment. Um, (laughs) So let's say, I think I saw an article a while ago with like, this may or may not be true, but like Uber is making, trying to develop some kind of like drone people moving kind of project, uh, essentially Uber of the skies. And Mm. While that like in concept could be a fantastic idea, it solves for so many problems. Does it actually resonate with users? <laughs> Is it going to be a thing that they're going to like, would you yeah. walk into a drone, a pilotless uh-huh. like thing? Uh-huh. Um, no, there's like so many different aspects of that, that you would have to build up and understand about the human psyche and just like what, how we work to make sure that that is going to be a successful product. So there's that end of it, um, in addition to the quote-unquote risk mitigator, which is more of like the usability stuff as well, but making sure that you have good product market fit, that it's something that people can use. There's also things where just simple design issues happen, and looking straight at the metrics will give you a misleading conclusion about a product um, let's say we we build feature a and feature a's like engagement scores are not great mm-hmm. um, and not having the kind of why behind this what that you're seeing 
you could be incorrectly scrapping a project. It could be like with a little bit of user testing, you would understand that like, oh, like this is a thing that people want to use. Mm-hmm. It's just that they can't see it on the site or like it was buried mm-hmm. in a menu and you can't do these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking like those things and then also just like the general building empathy for the users you're building stuff for. I think that it definitely humanizes product teams and I guess I would say maybe it humbles them a little bit. I don't know what the right word would be, but definitely humbles. Um, That's true. Definitely. <laughs> it's I think in tech specifically we get into this like let's drive engagement more and more and more and more. And when you can really connect with a customer as like a person, you start to think more ethically about the products that you're building. And you start to build products that you want to use. You would want your family to use. You have this yeah, kind of connection. Yeah. You know, I just have to interject with an example of this that came to mind as you were talking, which is like, I, I work at GitHub and like, we were looking at some numbers and it's like, oh, wow, there's a lot of people sort of like swiping notifications to Mark is done. And if we cared about the number of swipes, that would take us in a very different direction than actually like talking to the person who's like, I'm so annoyed that I have to swipe so many things. Like we should make a way to just have one swipe. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk actually about qual and quant in a second, but I think this like risk mitigation aspect is really interesting. And I imagine there's lots and lots of ways to perform that, like research methodologies to mitigate risk in a project. I'm familiar with a couple like, you know, prototyping, uh, doing polls, having in-person interviews and usability tests. But I'm curious if there's other methods of research that you found to be really effective in this risk mitigation that maybe some people haven't heard of or might not be familiar with. Like, did we list them or like, what what else comes to mind for methodology? <laughs> yeah, when I whenever uh, I'm listening to researchers talk or, or, or give feedback on how they perform their studies, sometimes there are like acronyms and methods af- named after people that I, I don't know what those things mean. Maybe maybe some of those are on the list. Oh, um, yeah, there's. <laughs> There is a swath of research methods that any given researcher could use, but mostly researchers stick to a few that they're really, really good at and or um, are just like part of their expertise. So UX research isn't just like a, a blanket thing, just like a doctor, right? Like you have doctors with different specialties, you have endocrinologists, right. gastroenterologists, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the same goes for researchers. So there are some that are really well versed in like ethnographic types of studies and these larger like just watching of people type things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's others that hopefully we'll talk a bit more on this on the quant qual thing, but are more on the quantitative side, which is how I started out. I was doing very much like quantitative measuring of usability as it's defined in like ISO, I think it's ISO 9241 part 11 of efficiency, effectiveness, and satisfaction, and these things that you can absolutely objectively measure. Wow. And there's others that are really, really involved in interviewing skills and other, you know, qualitative methods, right? Testing, um, just like rapid iterative testing, essentially usability test, but you're able to run one or two subjects test and improve the design a little bit and then like test again almost within the same day or the same week, depending on how quickly <laughs> you can work with a designer to get the mocks updated. But yeah, yeah. it's a really, really great way to kind of, I would say, mitigate risk for products that are already in progress, <laughs> we shall say. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
including like the part about what types of methods researchers could use. I honestly, it's just what we say in psychology all the time is it depends. Hey, hey, that's our fucking motto on this show. (laughs) It depends. Um, Nothing has ever been so true. It will always be true. So I, there's not like a go-to method. Uh, Risk mitigation could come in many forms and it just depends on where in the product cycle you are Um, at the beginning part. Then Definitely more of the more foundational methods like the ethnographic stuff, contextual inquiries, interviews, um, anything that you can do to like either understand that target audience a little bit better, understand the user flow or user journey a little bit better, whatever you're trying to improve. There's these big kind of open studies and you can conduct them with many, many different methods, but mostly just interviewing and things like that. Then on the other side, like product is already ideated, let's start on the design part. That's where the usability testing really, really comes in handy. And it, again, comes in many forms, like I was saying with the right testing, which is essentially just like usability tests with rapid updates of the prototype. Mm -hmm. But also there's different ways to just like conduct usability tests. But generally when we say usability tests, we're trying to understand kind of the discoverability of buttons and any large, I'd say issues you would see in a user completing whatever critical journeys that they have. Um, And again, like as a quantitative, at least originally quantitative researcher that is measured by like effectiveness, efficiency, satisfaction, effectiveness being like, how accurate is the thing that you're building? How, or how accurate, I would say, could users be <laughs> using the thing that you've built? Then there's efficiency, obviously, that's just, is it efficient? <laughs> how much time did it take for someone to do a thing? Is that an acceptable amount of time? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the kind of feedback for the team would be kind of, how do we reduce that? You want it to be as efficient as possible for the most part without sacrificing the effectiveness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then the satisfaction, It is um, just kind of like this subjective satisfaction with the system, which actually does play into this larger theme of perceived usability. So that is measured through many, many different scales and tools. I am personally a fan of the system usability scale or what we call SUS uh, because it's only 10 questions long and is essentially platform agnostic, though there are some times when the questions on it can be a little finicky. Uh, but it is my, my, one of my favorite things. This is a really dumb one. Is this different than net promoter score? And I've heard that promoter score is quite controversial for a lot of reasons. Is this also controversial in, in the community? I mean, not really, but I cannot believe you brought up NPS. <laughs> oh is, is that yeah. a, <laughs> I, no, I, I used to, when I first started working at a startup, we sent net promoter score surveys. And I guess since then, I've heard it's worthless, but people still use them. So what's your take? Why, why can't you believe I brought it up? What's the hot? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it is it is like a hot, hot button topic, mostly just because for, for those who work in like industry, because everybody wants to use it. It's 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 just like a I don't know, like a buzzword. <laughs> OK, um, OK. While I'm sure it does have like certain merits that I'm not well versed on right now, I I haven't seen enough proof <laughs> to show that 
it is actually something that will predict like customer, long-term customer retention or anything like that Um, or customer loyalty or like the things that we actually care about. And it's not as, it can't be used (laughs) for every situation. It's, it's overused right now. And it's mostly because I think that those using it don't understand what it is um, and what it's like actually supposed to be used for. Like, let's say that you're, a streamer or something or like let's a YouTube creator and we send out like a survey or something to you and it says like <laughs> the NPS would be like how likely are you rec- to recommend like this to be a friend or whatever <laughs> uh-huh, like uh-huh, what do you, mm-hmm. I don't know like how a hundred percent I want people to watch my stream is that what you're asking <laughs> yeah like it just doesn't make sense right so yeah, it could be yeah, like yeah. how how likely would I recommend being a creator to a friend like I see. Okay. No. <laughs> okay. Okay. This is helpful for me. Um, we, we don't have to talk about NPS anymore. Um, okay. <laughs> one thing we talked about recently actually was we had a listener question about qualitative versus quantitative user research. And, you know, Marsh and I, we did our best to talk about that. But now that you're here and like the expert, can you just help us with how you sort of define and then think about when to use qualitative versus quantitative research methods? Yeah, that is actually some, or at least in my opinion, one of the easier parts of my job. Generally, when you need quantitative measures, when you need to like actually size something and or have usability tests that are uh, statistically sound, uh, which actually you don't have to have that many people on a usability test for that to happen. Um, But yeah, when you're really worried about mission critical things, so any kind of like med tech work or defense industry work, anything like that, you want to use quantitative measures just to make sure that you have something that's statistically sound. With that, it also just depends on like what method you're using. (laughs) So you could do, you could take a kind of quantitative approach to usability, like I was saying, measuring like efficiency, effectiveness, satisfaction. So time on task, using the SUS, things like that. That's inherently quantitative. Um, Or you could take a more qualitative approach for usability when something's not like mission critical. Uh, So say that like, I don't know, Marshall updated something new at YouTube, changed the color of a button. (laughs) Like, I don't think I need like a super large sample size to be like 98% confident in my usability findings uh, Mm -hmm. for that because it's not like, it's not related to money. It's nothing that's going to like inherently harm anybody and like hopefully (laughs) not a meaningful way. Though there are some, you know, there could be some things with like, different types of colorblindness or something. I mean, Marshall can design a pretty issue. bad button if you really, you really want to have it. <laughs> also, you'd yeah. be surprised uh, uh, how difficult it is to change the color of a button. But yeah, continue. <laughs> oh, yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> um, so again, it just depends on like the type of question that you're answering and what's feasible. Um, some of the early stage work that I was telling you about earlier, when a product hasn't been designed yet, there's not necessarily a way to do quantitative research on the more people-oriented things that you're wanting to, to learn. So, totally. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make sense to, you know, you, you interview people until you hit what we call the saturation, and that's just when you're starting to see commonalities and, like, patterns and things like that. Mm. And that would usually take, 
I don't know, anywhere from like 10 to 30 people, depending on what, what you're doing. Um, so nothing that would actually quote unquote be like statistically relevant or quantitative, but it is something that is still very much indicative of trends, but mm -hmm. also people's responses and just people's behavior isn't necessarily a thing that you need to scale for the most part or um, can objectively measure some things you can, <laughs> not to like upset anybody out there, but uh, just how people are thinking, you don't, there's no, there's no inherent way to like objectively quantify that. So that's when the more qualitative methods would be useful. There is a quantitative side to that, depending on where you also where you are at a project cycle. But if you're in the beginning, you can do um, large, like most of this is considered market research, but large segmentations that tell you about the or segmentations based on psychographic and motivations and stuff like that. But these can tell you where your target audience kind of agrees on different behaviors or ideas or motivations and then actually size those for you in a global context. So you'll say that like population A like really likes takeout food and we're Uber Eats. <laughs> so like mm -hmm. we really want to like focus on these folks. Um, section B also likes takeout food, but maybe they're a little more cost conscious. So they'll be like our second uh, people to kind of like be our target audience and or we'll make features for and with those each of those segments like you also would have the the absolute sizing so you'll know that like of the target audience population 30 percent are person a or persona a i guess we can call it mm -hmm. um and 15 percent are b so we know that like a is the target audience that we want because of their motivations. They match what we need right now. They like takeout and they're not money conscious. <laughs> and they're also the largest one for us to capture. So all of these types of things can help a company understand who to go for or how to prioritize like features or um, products, whatever they're making mm -hmm. to hit this like first addressable audience. And so that's also a quantitative part. But yeah, this is... <laughs> It's a very complex answer for, I think, what might not have been known as like an extremely <laughs> complex question. <laughs> no, this is great. This is exactly yeah, what we were looking for. Well, <laughs> I, I want to push forward because we had another conversation maybe a week or two ago where, where we talked about, it, we're describing like the actual interview process or so doing user uh, research where you're talking to a customer either in person or I guess these days on a video call. And... I said something, I'm curious if you're going to scold me for this, but we were talking about the use of scripts, like scripting out how the conversation should go. And I uh, stated that my opinion was I did not like scripts. I find that they reduce the, the chance, the opportunities for sort of spontaneity or, or, or new discovery. And the way that I've seen scripts prepared in the past have been way too mechanical or resulted in mechanical conversations that made it was just like uncomfortable for the user. Uh, but we, I got an email uh, from a listener, Adam Chapman, who emailed us and was like, I hear you, Brian, but here are all the pros of using scripts in user research. So I would love your perspective on the way you've used scripts in the past. Do you recommend them? Do you like them? Uh, or have you found ways to use scripts to make uh, a conversation more effective without sort of reducing that opportunity for spontaneous discovery and while keeping the conversation natural and, and easy? Yeah, um, there's merit to both for sure. I 
personally like scripts. Um, and I think that depending on what you're trying to learn and who you're talking to, et cetera, there's, uh, again, the psychology go-to, it depends. Uh, <laughs> so there are some types of interviews or some studies that would require very strict scripts and that makes sure that you're asking everybody questions in the same way. It's more about basically like scientific research rigor more so uh, than anything. So you want to make sure that like all the data you're collecting, you're collecting in the same way for other people so that the, these unknown variables, like the way that I asked a question to you versus the way I asked it to Marshall, if it differed any, that could have elicited a different response. Mm -hmm. So there's all this variance that you can't control for. So you try to control for it with asking the same questions in the script. The script also helps just as a researcher. It's really hard to make sure you're getting everything answered or asked or uh, just to to be as natural as possible sometimes during these interviews. Uh, and for me personally, it helps a lot to have everything that I'm going to say scripted out especially like the intros and things like that. Like I, I literally read it um, for verbatim uh, and that helps me. That helps, I think, technically, depending on if you're working for a company, it helps the company as well because these are the types of things where you, you're telling participants like we're just using this internally and like there's no <laughs> they, things that are has to do with like their own safety uh, for their own good, but you don't want to ever forget to tell people these things or forget that, you know, to tell them that they can withdraw participation at any time, etc. There's also times when you want to use like a semi-structured script where you don't know really what you're looking for, right? This is again, more of the foundational research that you would do sometimes with uh, a product that has not been designed or built yet you don't know <laughs> what people's like journeys look like. We, mm -hmm. we want to understand what, what this is like. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no, not a really a great way to write a script when you don't 100% know or like have a finite set of things that could be uh, response possibilities. So uh, occasionally I'll do that and just make sure that I'll have some questions that I know or like either bigger themes and or just the things that I know that I want to know. <laughs> And we'll somewhat leave either the end of the interview and or the middle kind of more up to the person to tell me about what they're doing. Um, so let's say you're doing a field study. You want to understand how people watch TV, like what's going on in that dynamic. You would really benefit from a semi-structured interview protocol for that because then you could ask them. Everybody has like the same somewhat questions that are in your study, um, maybe like what they typically do when they're watching TV or what they're typically watching. Uh, so just so you have a list or something written down for <laughs> um, the types of shows they're watching, et cetera. Uh, but you might want to observe them actually watching TV with themselves or family, just like in their natural life. And as they're doing that, which we do do this sometimes, we, we, we will <laughs> observe people watching things and just like interrupt when we need to. Um, but that's where you come in with like kind of the semi-structured thing and just kind of making questions up on the, the go and uh, that helps with those situations. Then there's, I, I don't know if I've ever had, I don't think I've ever had an interview <laughs> where I didn't have a script. Mm. So I, I feel I definitely could understand how it would seem more natural and you can just talk about anything. Um, you know, I think part of my problem might be the definition of script because I would differentiate between like, here's a list of questions we want to ask versus 
having written out how you're going to ask the question. Hello, Does my name is Danae. Thank yeah. you for coming in today. Yeah, Which, kind of but you said you, you read that part <laughs> verbatim. That's like a script to me versus, you know, we're doing research on watching television. We want to ask them about this part. We want to ask them where, when, how often, what they like. Those are the, the, mm. the highlights. And as long as we hit those highlights, we're good. You know, like that's not a script in my book, but it's still preparation so yeah that's actually what i would consider a semi-structured uh, uh, interview protocol or a semi-structured script where you have these things that you know you want to hit and you kind of just ask them any way that you want i'm gonna endorse myself on linkedin as a semi-structured <laughs> designer so. there you go seems good <laughs> sounds about right uh when you're working with product designers what do you wish you could just like get out of your brain into their brain when they're designing screens and pixels and prototypes? Like what do designers not understand about your work that you wish you could just plug right into their brains? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I've had the pleasure of just working with amazing people. So this actually has never happened to me. Um, Designers have been, you know, my best friend for the most part in all jobs that I've had. Okay, uh, hang on. Let's pause. Marshall, cover yeah. your ears. Okay. I, I got earmuffs on. <laughs> All right, today you can talk. No. You can be honest. He'll never hear this. He'll never hear this. <laughs> no, I mean, it, that's the honest truth. And I think it just depends on the type of designer. Because like, I work with a lot of UX designers who very much understand the user research import, importance of that and uh, just making something that is usable. I would say maybe for, I don't know if this is the right term, but like some of the visual designers or whoever is making sites that are more pretty than useful kind of thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I can tell you're picking your words very carefully. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what? No, I mean, actually this is, this could be for everybody. Actually. Um, I, I would tell designers like feel empowered to test your designs. <laughs> Right. Like I've had many, many questions about, you know, testing, um, doing usability tests on so many different things. And, you know, it's only feasible for a researcher to do so many (laughs) of these kind of usability Mm. tests, um, especially when they're not necessarily like mission critical, but definitely uh, helps improve the design. I think any (laughs) any researcher in a small org could definitely appreciate this as well is helping to empower designers to do design research, to use usertesting.com, to be comfortable with this type of thing. I feel that usability testing in in most cases is something that can be taught. And I try to make sure, especially since I was on a small team and am technically still the sole researcher on my team right now, Mm -hmm. um, it's extremely important to work on the things that only you can work on, right? So my expertise is really in the like big foundational studies, making sure that I have the research rigor involved in my work to allow our team to have great information to inform like whatever product decisions that they need. And while I can do usability testing, I am for the most part confident that I can get something that will be enough (laughs) for the team to move forward with a design decision or something like that if somebody else were to run it and or just feel at least empowered to do so. That would be my advice. I I feel some tension with that one because I agree with it 100%. But Mm -hmm. the one thing that I have learned over the years is that 
a slight misphrasing of a question can dramatically change the impact or, or, or I guess just the result in, in general, right? Like accidentally asking a leading question or something like that. So th these are mistakes that I am terrified of making. And so, so perhaps the question here is like, if you were to give a designer a list of books or people to talk to or things to, to go dig into and, and learn about how to do this effectively so they don't make sort of these beginner mistakes, uh, where would you send them? Oh, that I'm actually just trying to think of how I learned how to do it because it was a skill. Most of the qualitative research skills that I have, I learned like on the job <laughs> um, mm -hmm. in industry rather than in school. And maybe that's um, it, right? It's like you just got to do it, but hopefully have somebody sitting next to you that can be like, oh, don't ask it like that, you know? Yeah, actually, that that is a very plausible way, <laughs> a very plausible method. Um, I think the way that I learned now that I'm thinking about it was just having a senior researcher looking at my my test strategies and things like that, but also just being cognizant of like when I ran a user testing test and I got weird looking answers to make sure that like I knew to adjust the wording or something to that effect. So it could be, yeah, just just do it. <laughs> Okay, well, here, let me let's dig in deeper here, because I think as I'm listening to your sort of credentials and what it took for you to get to where you are, that is very intimidating. And I could imagine there's a lot of designers out there that want to be more involved in research. They want to learn how to do this. Perhaps they don't have an expert that they can like go sit next to and learn through osmosis, but they actually need to go out and learn a thing. But the notion of going out and like going back to school and getting a master's and a PhD is way too intimidating. So I'm curious what your thinking is on like modern day becoming a user researcher paths. Like, does it have to be through academia? You know, in programming, boot camps are the hot new thing. Like you can go and take a six month front end coding boot camp and go work at Uber or whatever. Like, does that exist for design? And how do you feel about these different for paths research. for, yeah, for research, sorry. It's a yes and no. <laughs> so um, I have seen like design research boot camps that have put out really talented people and really talented designers that are empowered, I think, enough to be able to to know how to to test their designs and feel confident in that. And I do want to stress before, like you were 100 percent right. It does matter how you're stating things in the questions, especially for remote usability test and how you're interpreting things. You have to be really keen on, on making sure that you're interpreting what the actual issue or the core of the issue is versus, you know, somebody's raw feedback and or, you know, <laughs> just something that's not indicative of like the root cause of the problem. Mm. But that being said, it definitely is a skill that can be learned and, and I, it, from some of these boot camps and, and just reading the right books, etc. I'd say one of my favorite <laughs> intro to UX research, at least books um, and or the, the need for it is like it's called Set Phasers to Stun. I don't remember mm. the author of it, but it has a bunch of kind of like case studies of really unfortunate accidents that could have been prevented due to UI UX failures. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> there's that, that sounds awesome. I love the title. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. But for researchers coming into the role, I think this has been something that's starting to become debated of a, like the democratization of research and this, 
do you need a high level degree for, for some of these jobs? And it just keeps coming back to the, it depends. Traditionally, when you see UX research positions, job postings, the companies are wanting someone that has research rigor. So they're asking for these graduate level degrees because that's essentially where you learn that from. You have to sometimes like know statistics and understand how to create a study that you're not generating biased and or unreliable data from. Um, And you need like the ethnographic skills, knowing how to do that kind of thing. Um, Psychographics is huge. That is like one of the biggest things that my advisor drove home for me when I was in school and will always tell every researcher is like, take, if you're in a PhD program or master's program, wherever you are, take psychographics or psychometrics, sorry, <laughs> take psychometrics courses. I, it being I, able to, I got to stop you. Oh, I have no idea what psychometrics is. Nor I. Oh, <laughs> so it's basically just surveys, right? So, <laughs> wow. That's a fancy word for surveys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yes, there's but there's be a more. lot yeah. behind surveys. Um, if you want to make sure that a survey is measuring what you're thinking it's measuring. So psychometrics is the ability to build these surveys, but also validate them to ensure that they're measuring what you're wanting to measure and measuring these things consistently between people. That's how you have a good survey instrument. So um, psychometrics, <laughs> knowing how to make surveys, validate them, and essentially conduct statistics on them is invaluable, especially in industry. So yeah. please, please, please take psychometrics. Uh, <laughs> so there's things like that that are extremely useful and core to researchers' jobs that you definitely, I think, need that degree for. Uh, I have met fantastic researchers without graduate degrees and essentially they read the same books that I did in grad school Mm. so it's kind of like you know the same education minus the whatever price tag is on it (laughs) the debt (laughs) but well actually PhD programs at least for psychology they're generally paid for that is one of the biggest Mm. reasons why I got the PhD rather than the master's is I had to pay for the master's and I didn't have to pay for the PhD I see um Nice. Yeah, so there's these kinds of things where that that education really does matter and you just have to kind of take a look at the role because sometimes companies just need somebody who can run usability tests and do these quick design research method type things that in my opinion are, you know, very much like somewhat easily teachable, uh but there are other places where they need researchers, they need someone who understands cognitive abilities of humans and like how they perceive things, human perception. So I have, I'm an expert in human judgment, decision-making. I understand that humans, or at least there's a couple theories on attentional pool resources, but you know, for doing research on vehicles, you know, you have to have an understanding of a human's attentional resource pool and know that like, if the radio is going on and all these other things are happening in the car. Like what's, what's a good way to let somebody know that, you know, they're veering outside of their lane. Cause now we have all these cameras and stuff <laughs> on cars. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously like, maybe it's not an auditory signal. Right. And you don't want to do something like visually really, because like somebody's using a visual attention source. Um, so then you want to use maybe that's something that's haptic, something that you can feel, uh, because that resource pool isn't being used. Uh, so, you know, things things like that where you really, really need these, like, insane understandings of humans. Uh, really, you need the education for. And 
does all that understanding change the way you perceive how you act yourself? Like, are you aware of those things as you're doing them as a human, you know? Yes, <laughs> very much so. And it makes things much more annoying. Yeah, <laughs> <I bet. laughs> Damn it, my attentional resource pool is dwindling in this moment. <laughs> right. Well, because there's different theories about that. So, so there, there's times when I see myself like, oh, well, do I feel more cognitive load because I'm listening to a podcast and touching something and eating and like using one of each sense? Or do I feel more when I have one being used and, you know, it's just being bombarded with things or you know there's lots of yeah. lots of theory proving that you're trying to do um seeing blue lights at night that's like a huge hci like no no because of the i mean now that people know this we have our phones and stuff turning screens orange and stuff at night but uh yeah. it's yeah I, I think about these things and i appreciate little design very thoughtful i guess human-centered design <laughs> when i see it yeah. On a day-to-day basis. I love it. Well, we understand you're working uh, on a paper and you've been part of a panel to talk about like the future of UX research and what is the field becoming. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So I am going to be on a panel at an upcoming conference this this Friday, I guess you would call it, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, called UX Y'all. And the the name of the talk is Dear Design. I don't I love you, but I don't know where you end and I begin. Mm-hmm. And um, a UX State of the Union uh, is what the other talk is called. And it's this, of a similar topic, but at the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society International meeting. So that'll be in later October, I believe. Uh, and it's basically just getting into what we talked about earlier, like what is UX research evolving into with the democratization of research with either you know designers doing some of the work or PMs doing work? Does that kind of lessen the value of what a researcher is or does? Hmm. And yeah, some of the more like, well, what if we just need people to do usability versus like these very specialized researchers? Where What is this... This evolution of of UX research, um, what does it mean? Is it too big of a term for what it's becoming now? Do we need to have different terms? Like I've seen usability specialist before as a as a job posting, and yeah. you know, thinking about how that's different than what I'm doing, and how having me as like a usability specialist might be you know, like hitting a nail with a sledgehammer, like you may not Mm -hmm. need it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And for these roles, it would 100% be appropriate and, you know, expected to have somebody that doesn't, that meets kind of the criteria of being able to do usability tests and do the design research needed um, versus the bigger kind of thought work that a lot of the UX research folks are more specialized in doing. You know, it's fascinating to hear you talk about this just because there's so many parallels with the sort of next circle over uh, just product designers having the same conversations about like, mm-hmm. can anyone be a designer? Is everyone a designer? Is the PM a designer? Like, what does it mean to be a designer? Should we have more <laughs> specialized titles? Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting to see that like parallel evolution happening at the same time in, in UX research. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. And will that panel be streamed in a way that people can watch it for free after the fact? Where can we send people? I'm not sure. I don't think it's going to be available for free um, since this, it's it's definitely like a paid conference. But, you know, with COVID and things, 
people are operating a little bit differently. Um, but I would definitely just encourage you to look up UX y'all and it's just UX and then Y apostrophe A-L-L that conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's dear design. I love you, but I don't know where I end or you end and I begin. And uh, for the human factors and ergonomics one, just literally type in HFES international meeting in Google and it'll take you straight to the site. But that's um, where you can see some more info on the talks. Awesome. Thank cool. you. All right. Let's do some cool things. All right. Let's get into cool things. I'll go first. Then Danae and Marshall, you can wrap us up. Cool. Uh, my, my cool thing this week, I'm going to plug the company that I work for. But a team at GitHub launched last week a new GitHub CLI, which is a way to interface with GitHub on the command line. And it is very good. It is really awesome. The designer, Amanda Pensker, she's on the team and she... Uh, Gave a talk at Figma Config, this the EU version last week. Mm. Uh, config, Config. I don't know if I'm saying that Con- right. Config, FigCon. FigCon, thank you. Uh, <laughs> all about designing like a text-based uh, interface within a terminal. Anyways, this product is awesome. And the reason I specifically think it's very cool is because it is not only incredibly powerful for people who are experienced developers and who know everything that's going on with commits and Git and how to to successfully sort of iterate on software from a command line, but it's also incredibly beginner friendly. Like if you don't know anything, uh, it's a wonderful tool that uses really predictable, natural language to execute certain sorts of uh, prompts. And if you have typos or get things wrong, it'll like offer suggestions and it's formatted with uh, really thoughtful consideration for colors and bolding and indentation to make things understandable as a system. Uh, so you know what you're reading, what it means, what's what sort of system UI text versus what is a response from from the prompt that you've executed. So mm. I just wanted to shout this out for people who are perhaps have tried other CLI tools in the past for interacting with Git, like GH. The new CLI, uh, GitHub CLI, is really a wonderful tool. So that's at cli.github.com. And I think that FigCon video of Amanda's is going to be out in October publicly, so... You can keep an eye out for, for when Figma releases those. That's my cool thing. Awesome. Thanks. All right, Danae, how are you? Whew, okay. <laughs> so I'm a pretty avid whiskey drinker, and oh. I know. I <laughs> love, it, love it. I'm from Texas, of course. So, <laughs> right, I recently tried a new whiskey that's made, I think it's like in San Francisco, but it's like definitely a Bay Area thing. And it's called Glyph, G-L-Y-P-H. Oh, you're cool. speaking and our language. That, that sounds so SF. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> this is like design typesetters dream. Uh-huh. They're also yeah. whiskey. Yeah. Kern. Of you know. course. <laughs> um, so they basically quote unquote take like a molecular approach to whiskey. And so rather than, you know, using plants and yeast and all of these other things that give whiskeys their distinct flavor, they basically use like whatever they they use a chemical that's like chemically similar (laughs) to the taste uh so like say Mm. vanilla or oak or something like that right Mm -hmm. i I don't think that they do peatiness but they have all of this and they kind of just like create this beautifully tasted like whiskey or at least i think it's really really good very drinkable for the most part and uh especially for those who like a really like vanilla heavy whiskey uh that one's it's very good 
So I'm on their website, and the packaging is is very pretty as well. I, I want to get a bottle just to hold this thing. It's really pretty. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm looking at their other products, and this helped me understand. It says um, they have a product called Kazoku, which is a molecular spirit inspired by sake, but it's made without rice, which as a result means it uses less water, less land, and has less carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. So there's like an environmental play here as well, right? Hmm. yeah that's cool no and that's i guess like what made me pick it as like the cool thing to talk about um it's not necessarily just because like the flavor of the whiskey yes it's great but the potential is so great like you could think about like you're saying like the the environmental positive environmental impact but additionally like you could start having custom whiskeys right made for yourself like yeah there's no, and I hope this doesn't like take away from old world like whiskey makers and the traditional way of doing things, but this is, it was a very interesting take. I'd never heard of anybody doing something like this. And I could just imagine myself like for my next birthday, brewing up like a custom yeah. whiskey profile, right? This is very cool. That's sick. I'm going to try this. Thank you for the recommendation. Yeah. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. It's it's endlesswest.com slash glyph. Cool thing, Danae. All right, so... <laughs> bring us home, Marshall. Uh, I'll bring you home. All right, so uh, my cool thing is the AirPods update that just went out. I think it's part of iOS 14.2 beta. I'm not entirely sure about that, but it introduces a bunch of things, including spatial audio, which was um, announced, I think, at dub. Yes. So, okay, let me... Let me go through a few of the the nice features of this thing. It's been pretty awesome. So, like, you know, headphones aren't usually on my list of things that I am excited about firmware updates for, but now it's on the list. So, okay, so first off, spatial audio. Um, it's it's kind of magical. I don't know if you've used it either of you. Have you have you tried it out? I have not. No. So this is the thing where it uses the gyroscopes in your headphones and in your device, like phone or iPhone or iPad, to talk to each other to know where they are in relation to one another in, in 3D space so that when you turn your head, it, it's as though the sound continues coming from the same source, which is the phone. It's this... I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm describing it well, but... It's the most amazing, it feels like the sound is coming from your phone. So you got your headphones on. I'm convinced that my fiance sitting next to me can hear the sound, but nope, it's all just coming through my headphones. Am I describing this well? I don't know if, I, if you know what I'm talking about. I think it, you'll have to hear it to believe it, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Another nice thing it does is automatic switching. So if you're, and this only works on first party apps at the moment, I think it has to be ad- adopted by other developers, but uh, if you're listening to, say, music on your iPhone and then you go to use your iPad, it will automatically switch your headphones over. So, like, if you go to play uh, an audiobook on your iPad or something like that, it will know, okay, disconnect from the iPhone, connect on the iPad immediately. It happens so fast and it works back and forth. That's pretty magical, too. You get battery notifications when it gets down to, like, 20 and 10%, which... Before, it would play like a kind of sound to let you know that shit's dying. But I could never remember, like, is this the first one? Have I heard this one already? Because the first one's 20, second one's 10, and then they die. Um, so now you get a little notification on your phone telling you what the battery level is. So here's the, here's the one negative thing I'll say about this is that spatial audio thing, it's, it's awesome, right? Like, it, it works really well until it doesn't. And 
you turn your head and then you turn your head back and it gets stuck like 10 degrees off from where it actually is. You know what I mean? Oh, interesting. And is there a way to reset it? Like, do you just shake your head or something? Yeah, you know how uh, you reset the compass on your phone if you're out walking around and it's got your face in the wrong direction? You can't do like a figure figure eight eight thing. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. That tends to work. Nothing as extreme as that, but like, yeah, just like move the phone around and move your head around a little bit and they'll they'll figure Uh, itself out. But yeah. (laughs) It's a beta, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's very early, but it's it's pretty impressive. So, anyways, yeah, AirPods update. Awesome. Um, nice. I'll well, have to get that. Danae, you picked the coolest cool thing, uh, I will admit, this week. True. Ours yeah. Is it because it's alcohol? Pretty, I'm a bit Pretty ashamed. dorky. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, AirPods got a firmware update, and I have a command line. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, well, this has been so fun. Thank you for taking the time to come and educate us and, and just talk about user research in general. I think this is so fun and interesting and important. So, uh, yeah, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, no, thanks for having me. All right. And this has been episode 365 of the Design Details podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you did, let us know. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. We are supported this week by Webflow. Webflow is going to help you take the next step in your design process by bringing the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript into a visual interface so that you, a designer, can build completely custom websites without having to worry about writing code. You can learn more by going to designdetails.fm slash Webflow. And if you sign up for an annual account, you'll get 10% off. If you need more podcasts, go to spec.fm. That's our podcast network for designers and developers just Just like like you. you. Uh, Otherwise, tweet at us, DM us. We love hearing from you, and we'll see you next week. All right. I'm going to go old school with it and just say, it ain't no lie, baby. Bye, bye, bye. Otherwise, tweet at us, DM us. We love hearing from you, and we'll see you next week. That's your cue. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I wasn't sure if there was like an actual cute, cute kind of thing. Um, All right. I'm going to go old school with it and just say, it ain't no lie, baby. Bye, bye, bye. Oh, amazing. (laughs) That's so good. Well done. Well done. Uh, we I don't I don't think we've ever been brave enough to put too much of our singing on the show. So yeah. This is, oh this my god! I was like, you're gonna have to auto tune that. <laughs> no, 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 no! It's like great! It's great! A karaoke fanatic, so we'll have to do that at some point. Amazing. <laughs>